to News Talk Tonight with Jim Richards on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. This is the iHeart Talk Radio Network. I'm the aforementioned broadcaster. Thank you very much for your time. There's a brand new book that's getting a lot of publicity. It's called UFO, the inside story of the U.S. government search for alien life here and out there. It takes us back to those hearings in Washington a year and a bit ago. In the Baptist church, we'd say that the devil's in our way. Do you believe that our government is in possession of UAPs? Uh, Absolutely, based on interviewing uh, over 40 witnesses over four years. This object was uh, estimated to be almost the size of a football field. No, I think it's far beyond actually our material science that we currently possess. Do you think anybody's mind was changed because of this? I think they will when they see this. They see those men. They're not just, just some random people off the street. Do you believe UAPs pose a potential threat to our national security? Yes. The, the technology that we faced was far superior than anything that we had. Identifying friend from foe is, is very important to us. Uh, and so when we have unidentified targets and we continue to ignore those due to a stigma or a fear of what it could be, that's an opening that our adversaries can take advantage of. Unverified aerial phenomenon. That's what UAP is because UFO, the definition is basically unidentified flying object. Doesn't mean that it is alien. So this is a pretty exciting book. I know a lot of people who follow UFOs are kind of looking at this as the Bible of real journalism being put on this genre. Garrick M. Graff joins us right now. Garrett, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And a beauty accomplishment. Why UFOs? So one of the things, I come at this as a serious national security journalist. Um, I've spent about 20 years covering national security. My previous books look at things like the Cold War, nuclear strategy, the American presidency, the war on terror. And in Washington, what I began to notice was a change in the conversation around UFOs and UAPs around 2017, where you probably remember there was some blockbuster reporting by the New York Times and Politico about the Pentagon's efforts to study this phenomenon and reports from Navy aviators, um, some of which you heard from uh, in the lead up to the segment here, um, who said that they'd been encountering things that they couldn't explain, technologies that seemed to exceed what the U.S. possessed. And there, for me, was a very specific moment when John Brennan, who was the former CIA director, former White House Homeland Security Advisor, in December 2020, gave an interview where he says, there are things out there that puzzle us, that we don't know what they are, and that they may constitute a new form of life. And that, for me, was a really startling statement coming from someone uh, with the resume of John Brennan. And so that's what led me down uh, the path of starting to write this book, trying to trace the history, both of the U.S. government's hunt for UFOs here and the evolving science and astronomy of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence out there. What did you make of those Senate hearings when credible, I would say credible, what do I know, though, but the fighter pilots and engaging with with what they would say are alien ships, that was some of the most compelling stuff that I've ever seen. 
Yes. And I think that they are part and parcel of a specific type of witness that we see time and again across the modern UFO age. Um, when you go back through the history, this really begins in the wake of World War II at the dawn of the Cold War. You have uh, what, the, what the public first calls flying saucers, then the government rebrands UFOs, uh, and then, as you were saying, uh, you, you end up with this sort of funny thing where the government now has to rebrand it again as unidentified anomalous phenomena, UAPs, in order to try to have a more serious conversation and reduce the so-called giggle factor of having people come forward with UFO sightings. Um, but those Navy aviators um, are, as I said, a specific type of witness that we see throughout this story, who are people who uh, have, you know, respect in the community, have, uh, you know, relative levels of experience in terms of their observation skills, uh, scientists, engineers, uh, police officers, pilots, and that they have no obvious reason to make up an encounter with a UFO or UAP. And yeah. in fact, quite the contrary. They have a lot to lose by admitting that they are having this encounter. Um, and so for me, those are really the most credible types of witnesses that we have across the 80 year history of this phenomenon. I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember about a year ago coming across a stat that said that 90% of the people who say that they've had an encounter or have seen a UFO comes from America, the other two places that make up close to the 100%, Canada and the UK. That would all, when you say Cold War, put all of us on one side. It's all the West. Is that correct, If to the best of your knowledge? And why would that be? And what does it tell us if it is? Yeah, the UFO phenomenon is actually quite global. Um, the, there are well-documented sightings uh, in effectively every corner of the globe. Um, in fact, France is actually probably the, the world leader in taking this subject seriously. Is that right? They have okay. had a long-running UFO study program since the 1970s uh, that is very serious and very transparent in its work and its findings. Uh, and then you have a lot of weird sightings from uh, all over the globe, you know, now and again. Um, the Costa Rican government, actually, um, one of their survey planes took what is widely believed to be the best, most puzzling photo of a UFO. Um, and we don't really know what it is. We don't know what the context of that craft was. Uh, but. Uh, you know, it's one of the photos I include in my book. And if you ask ufologists, you know, what's the best photo we have of a UFO? Almost everyone points to this photo by the Costa Rican government. Yeah. What do you think is the most compelling story? Because you've taken a look at all of them, right? If people are these UFOologists, they're familiar with and can probably quiz you about a whole bunch of them. In fact, I heard a podcast yesterday where a bunch of people were throwing, well, what about this story? Well, what about this story? Is there one of them that is the most compelling for you? Well, as I said, to me, the most compelling are these one-off encounters when people have... Uh, 
you know, sort of seemingly ordinary, seemingly respectable people have a single encounter that is unexplained. A big part of the challenge of this phenomenon, though, is, you know, and, and this is something that's true of every car accident on every street corner in the world, humans are terrible witnesses. And what the challenge that we have had is we don't have good actual hard data. Um, you know, we don't have good sensor uh, data. We don't have good photographs. We don't have good videos of uh, whatever the, this phenomenon is. And I think actually the answer is that it's many different things, not just one, uh, one answer to this mystery. Um, but to me, a big part of what I hope is happening right now as this conversation changes is that people are beginning to move towards wanting to collect better data, um, move to more instrument-based, more sensor-based collection of information on UAPs to help us better study whatever this thing turns out to be. And that's what the people at NASA introduced earlier this year. And the top takeaway from the study is that there is a lot more to learn. The NASA independent study team did not find any evidence that UAP have an extraterrestrial origin. But we don't know what these UAP are. So that is Bill Nelson from NASA. We'll ask our guest about that in a second. Garrett M. Graff is the author of UFO, the inside story of the United States government's search for alien life here and out there. When Explained continues. Welcome back to News Talk Tonight with Jim Richards on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. We're talking about a brand new book that a lot of people have been talking about. You may have read articles, seen it talked about on television or heard a podcast about it. The book is called UFO, the inside story of the U.S. government's search for alien life here and out there. Uh, serious journalist taking a look at that, this. That's why I think people are looking at this book differently because the reputation that Garrett M. Graff has. And he's our guest right now talking about his book. Did America's public fascination, um, by the way, when would that have begun? Is that at the same timeline when you were talking about the Cold War? Yes, really, this begins in the summer of 1947. Uh, again, right at the end of the Cold War, or right at the end of World War II, dawn of the Cold War. There's a series of sightings in the summer of 1947, the first by an Idaho businessman flying in the Pacific Northwest uh, near Mount Rainier, where he spots what he says are nine fast-moving flying saucers. That he lands, tells some friends about this, uh, ends up getting interviewed by the press about it. That kicks off this summer of flying saucers, where there are ultimately flying saucers reported in 34 states across the country, up into Canada, uh, all over North America. And uh, you have uh, actually that summer also the, the crash at Roswell, New Mexico, the, the, the now infamous flying saucer crash. Um, although at the time, uh, it was not seen as a particularly interesting incident. It was very quickly forgotten. 
in that summer amid all of these flying saucer reports. Now, Cold War anxiety is what was driving this phenomenon uh, and this national fascination at that moment. The, there was almost no one who was linking this to the possible possibility of extraterrestrials. The U.S. military, U.S. government was concerned instead that this was secret Soviet spacecraft being built by kidnapped Nazi rocket scientists. Because, well, what was the United States doing at that moment? They were Same thing. building secret rockets yeah. with Nazi rocket scientists. And that they were afraid that the Soviet Union was taking an early lead in the space race. So to me, uh, what is so interesting about this is that you really begin to only have the linkage between UFOs and extraterrestrials begin to take hold in the 1950s as Hollywood and pop culture uh, rushes out a wave of alien invasion movies. And that over the years ahead, you see this, you know, feedback loop of Hollywood and pop culture interest driving public fascination, yep. driving increases in public uh, reports of these sightings, which drives the national security concern that, you know, continues to pop back up year after year, decade after decade um, up until the present day, really. So uh, two questions then. Do you believe in alien life form and the fact that it may have visited us in some form? So those are actually very different questions. And, it, and it's something that I spend a lot of time talking about in the book, because what we have seen uh, over the last 20, 25 years is this remarkable revolution in human knowledge and understanding of the size, scope, and scale of the universe. As late as the 1990s, we did not even understand that there were any planets outside of our solar system. Now, though, we actually believe that almost every star in the universe has planets, and that when you begin to even adjust for what you would call the Goldilocks zone, uh, which is habitable planets, uh, you know, that represent temperatures and the possibility for water and oxygen and life as we know it. Um, there are one sextillion habitable planets across the universe, um, you know, to a rough order of magnitude uh, estimation at this point. That's a billion trillion habitable planets. So the math is actually very much on the side of the aliens. But at the same time, it's probably incredibly far away from us. And, and it's highly likely that uh, while there is life and almost certainly intelligent life in probably many places around the universe, uh, the vast distances between those civilizations uh, me might very well mean we never have meaningful contact with them. What is Area 51? Area 51 is uh, the Nevada test site where the U.S. government uh, has long built and tested its most secret flight, uh, uh, flight development projects. You know, sort of new secret planes, new uh, stealth technologies, new surveillance technologies. Uh, and it is a place of great lore and mythology in ufology because people have long believed 
that it has hangars of uh, retrieved uh, alien spacecraft, maybe even alien bodies. Um, this was something that was, uh, as some of your listeners may remember, a key part of that Will Smith movie, Independence Day in the 1990s, that the president, after the alien invasion, is brought down to the underground bunkers underneath Area 51, where he is shown the alien spacecraft and the alien bodies that scientists and the military have recovered over the years. Um, I think that there is a lot of reason to doubt that the U.S. government is, uh, or really any global government, is uh, hiding alien beings uh, or alien craft, um, which is not to say, though, that there are not projects within Area 51 that we don't know about and that the U.S. government may very well have retrieved true UFOs, unidentified flying objects, that it is trying to figure out what they are and who made them. But that doesn't necessarily lead me to the conclusion that they're extraterrestrials. Interesting. So with the news that NASA is now going to participate and use its tools to help in this search for alien life form, I'm guessing that you think that that's a good thing, but do you think it'll amount to anything? I think it will. And to me, part of what the challenge of this is, and I spend some time looking at the science of this in the book, is there are interesting and insightful and meaningful and world-changing answers that can be unraveled in the mystery of UFOs and UAPs, even if the answer is in extraterrestrials visiting Earth in flying saucers. That there, part of the answer to this phenomenon is almost certainly uh, advanced adversary technologies being tested against us. You know, Chinese, Russian, Iranian technologies being tested against us that we would want to know about. And then there's also some scientific advances that I believe will come from digging into this deeper. Advances in meteorological science, atmospheric science, astronomical science, as well as probably core principles of physics that we don't yet understand. To me, it is entirely possible that some of the answers to this phenomenon are going to be weirder than anything that we can possibly imagine. Hmm. And that we should be humble about how little of the world around us we actually understand right now. Can you give me a one minute answer for whether or not there's any similarities between UFO conspiracy theories over the years and what we're seeing right now driving political conspiracy theories? Yeah, I, I actually think that in many ways, the political conspiracies that we're struggling with in our modern uh, political environment started in the 1970s and 1980s in the United States with UFO conspiracies, that the, the first major wave of government cover-up conspiracies that you see in the wake of Watergate, Interesting. Pentagon Papers in Vietnam, are these dark conspiracies about you know, what we now call the deep state, hiding government uh, knowledge of alien contact, alien crafts, uh, even peace treaties with alien civilizations. So if that can be true, then uh, why can't some of the, you know, half brain things that people are coming up with uh, be true? I get it. UFO, Absolutely. UFO inside the story of the U.S. government's search for alien life here and out there. Very credible journalist with a huge resume behind him. Garrett M. Graff, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. 
Absolutely a pleasure. Thanks. It is our look at the hottest podcasts of the week next here on the iHeart Talk Radio Network. This is News Talk Tonight with Jim Richards on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Sure is. Thank you very much for your time. David Cooper coming up in about 45 minutes time here on the iHeartTalk radio network. Slow news day is on the way as well. Each and every Thursday at this time, we check in with our friend Imran, who is in Los Angeles. And what he does is basically take care of all of your podcasting needs. You know, Rotten Tomatoes for movies. Well, Great Pods is there for you when it comes to podcasts. He takes a look at podcasts that have been reviewed. It's basically the Rotten Tomatoes for podcasts. You can find them on all social media at Great Pods or sign up for the newsletter that's going to tell you about great podcasts. And you can do that at his website, greatpods.co. Imran, a.k.a. Captain Ron, joins us now. Imran, thank you very much for your time. Hey, potty people. Oh, oh, is that the hey. first time you've ever done that? I've, I've, I think I, yeah, I think that's the first time I've done that here. Yeah. Oh, man. I do sign on my newsletter every single week consistently. I say, hey, potty people on the top side. I was like, yeah, why don't I do this on the air too? Why don't you? Why haven't you? We've done this for over a year and this is the first <laughs> time you're hitting us with potty people. I know. And I got t-shirts made that said it. So boom, do you, uh, I'll do make you... sure I, when I hit up Toronto, I'm going to bring those shirts over. Are you, um, by the way, were you at a podcast convention last week or was that two weeks ago? That was uh, two weeks ago uh, on Airfest LA. Um, I think, yeah, I took, I did the um, recommendations from the parking lot when I was there. You did? Yeah. How many? That was exciting. The only reason I bring it up is because I feel like you're going to a couple of conventions a year. What's going on with my voice? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, but it seems like you're going to a couple of these podcasting conventions a year. Uh, yeah, there's there's quite a few of them that happen. Some small, some big. Uh, there's uh, this one special one. The one that I consistently go to out in the States, there's one called Podcast Movement. It's been around for um, almost a decade, I believe. But it's grown. And um, next year, it's happening. It's usually in summer. And it happens uh, in major cities. The next year's one is going to be in D.C. They have a smaller version that happens between Vegas and L.A. That happens during the springtime. So luckily, I don't have to travel anywhere. It's like kind of down the street. So I can go to the L.A. one in March of next year. But there's one in London that's brand new. And it's like pretty exciting. It's like fresh it's new new people you meet a lot of european podcasters as well i'm excited for that one uh, to head over to london and last but not least there is um i'll get more information for next week uh but there's one called outlier fest it's uh really intimate and for podcasters that are out there and especially those that are listening i believe they're having one uh, in Toronto, um, at some point, I, I'll do some research and come back with you uh, on that information of when it's coming to Toronto, if it hasn't passed already. Okay. What's the yeah. first podcast? The first podcast, we have Amy Poehler with Say More with Dr. Sheila. Greetings, podcast listeners. This is world-renowned, self-proclaimed couples therapist, Dr. Sheila. And I would like to invite all of you to experience a new season of my couples therapy podcast, Say More with Dr. Sheila. 
And yes, for legal reasons, you do need to say the doctor in the form of a question. In my sessions, we get to the core of the fundamental question, what's wrong with you? Amy Poehler, is that Amy Poehler there? That is, that's her voice? That that yeah, That is uh, Saturday Night Live's Amy Poehler um, with her parody podcast. Uh, of a therapist like those therapy podcasts yes that that is her voice and she talks like that for most well 99% of the podcast until the outros how how long is this podcast this this podcast has been actually surprisingly been out for a month this is about a half hour half hour podcast yeah Yeah, it's 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 pretty great she gets her snl friends are on there like chris parnell anna gasteyer tina fey rachel drash all her buds are on there, uh, as well as um, non-SNL alum as well. But they're all comedians, and it's supposedly 90% improvised. Uh, they just go through the... And the, and these guys that are on there, the comedians that are on there, they're well-versed in improvisation as well. Sure. So it, it, is a, it is a trip. I I did laugh. It was... it was a, It's a great... It is somewhat not safe for work. It is adult in themes. Um especially the third episode, I believe, with Paul Shear and June Diane Raphael, where they talk about some other adult stuff. Um, I won't mention all okay. that. But yeah, it's pretty good. It's um, And if you listen to Esther Perel, she's a, an, a legit um, uh, couples therapist. Uh, this is like a parody of Esther Perel. Is Esther Perel, is that something that a lot of people would know about? She is quite popular in couples therapy uh, in podcasts. And she was Spotify exclusive for a while, but that deal is over and that's open to the public now. It's on all platforms, Esther Perel, if you wanted to look her up as well. Okay, so that's where yeah. Amy Poehler plays Dr. Sheila. Say more with she, uh, with uh, Dr. Sheila is the name of the podcast. Oh, you got to say doctor with a question mark. Say more with Dr. Sheila? Yeah. Is that because she doesn't? She wa- does, wants people to know that it's a joke, or yeah? Well, no, I, I bet you it is like a hundred percent a joke, not for legal reasons yeah. or anything. Okay, but, yeah. what do you got next? Next up is Dauta, the po- um, the podcast. My name is Lisa Marie Simmons, and we are black transracial adoptees. Lisa is a singer, songwriter, poet, and essayist. And Dion is a writer, actor, and producer of Data, an immersive musical piece that follows the story of Sarah, a transracial adoptee. Join us as we journey into Sarah's world of transracial adoption with intimate interviews, personal insights, and research. We hope this podcast offers you knowledge, comfort, and support. Okay, that ticks a lot of boxes there. Yeah, and, and and for sure, it's one of those podcasts that you will learn something, and which I appreciate and love. You get educated. I had no idea about even the term transracial adoption. Uh, just straight off, I have the no first idea what it means. It. I, I I thought I mean uh, when I, I, I maybe I heard it wrong. People are going to be upset with me, but I just thought it was uh, racialized people who are trans. No. No, no, no. This is uh, this is um, from another country. Adoption from another country uh, to Caucasian uh, adoptive parents. Oh, so, they, so for example, I believe one of. Uh, well, I don't want to get the 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 country wrong, so I'm not going to say it. But like, uh, yeah, that that's exactly what that is from different races or ethnicities from a different country and adopted into another country. Interesting. Yeah. That that would be interesting because somebody's uh, taking on a, you know. 
it's totally fish out of water in an entirely different uh, scenario. And yeah. finally, last but not least, what now with Trevor Noah? So, why did I, Trevor Noah, decide to do a podcast? I think this podcast gives me an opportunity to have the conversations that I've been having just with other people able to listen in on them. And I think the messy conversations are the necessary conversations. I think they're fun. I think they're dynamic. And I think a great conversation about anything that matters has you walking away saying, huh, I may not have changed my mind, but that gave me something to think about. What Now with Trevor Noah, the name of the podcast, uh, I guess people were trying to figure out what he was going to do after The Daily Show. It turns out this is one of those things. Why is it so controversial? Is it controversial? I, I'm not, I, I haven't heard anything controversial about, oh. I, I guess I haven't seen anything controversial about it. I listened to it. I didn't hear any, I listened to the, the first episode uh, with The Rock. I didn't hear anything controversial. Okay. Um, I think it made viral. It, it was viral in the last week because The Rock had said on the podcast that um, some of the political parties had approached him to be uh, to run for president. Okay, so there was like that sort of virality going on. But um, it's a pretty standard podcast as far as like conversation. I was going to say, like, go. why do we need another? So uh, nothing. Not that it might be the best one out there, but it just seems like a pretty crowded field of celebrity interviewing other celebrities. Right. And and I think you're you're on it, uh, at least for this first episode or second episode uh, with Kerry Washington. So uh, but what I do like and this is what I, I'll, I'll take uh, take away from the podcast after listening to it. The first 10 minutes is like Trevor Noah. Like, that's what I like about Trevor Noah, like daily show comedian makes you think a little bit and go, huh? Like he said in the trailer, those first 10 minutes, he talks about his experience, like maybe he was gone. I think he went to a gala. And was, they said, I wouldn't talk about this on air, but I'm going to tell you in this conversation. Yep. And if you can't talk about these difficult things, what hope do we have? And so that part, I really love those first 10 minutes. And then there's little tidbits throughout the conversation okay. with The Rock. that are, We like, got to run. Cool. So, uh, Imran, right. thank you very much for your time. Check out greatpods.co. Awesome. Sign up for the newsletter and on all social media at greatpods if you want to find out about the latest, greatest podcasts. In a moment, it's Canadian History X with Craig Baird. This is News Talk Tonight with Jim Richards on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. It's that time of week where we take a look at our own history with one of the best out there. And it is uh, Christmas for Craig Baird, who you can follow on Twitter at Craig Baird, Canadian History X, Canadian History EHX, or Canada ehx.com where you can find all of your favorite history podcasts and all of the great work that Craig does but you need to follow him on social media at Craig Baird who joins us right now Craig thank you very much for your time well thanks for having me this is your favorite time of the year people think that probably means you enjoy the holiday season but no uh, we're getting cl close to Canadian History Week I bet a lot of people are listening thinking uh, I didn't even know that it was Canadian History Week, but that's what, next week? It is, yeah, from the 20th to the 26th. So your Twitter account is usually nonstop posts about Canadian history today uh, in Canadian history. How is it any different for you on Canadian History Week? 
Well, I guess it has a bit more of a focus. Uh, for example, this Canada History Week is the history of Black achievement in Canada. So that's this year's theme. So that's kind of what I'm going to focus on through the week. Pretty cool. All right. There was a viral post that was out, which is pretty cool. I've seen Americans post it. The most lewd sounding town names in each state. They are, um, okay, so Virgin. Some of these uh, places, Kinkler, Texas. There's uh, Hump Tulip, Washington. There's Wanker's Corner in Oregon. There's all sorts of places like that. There's a Spread Eagle, Mich no, sorry, that's Dick, Michigan. Spread Eagle, where is that? Um, there's a Keister. Uh, there's Cummings and you, or there's a Beaver City in another state. There's a Dry Wood. These are all American towns, but <laughs> you couldn't let that pass without letting our American friends saying that we could pretty much uh, compete uh, town for town. What do you have as lewd sounding Canadian town names? Well, there's several. I mean, there's Climax, Saskatchewan, Dildo, Newfoundland, Labrador, Sexsmith, Alberta, Blow Me Down, Newfoundland, Come By Chance, Newfoundland, Spread Eagle, Newfoundland, Balls Falls, Ontario, Crotch Lake, Ontario, Finger, Manitoba, Shag Harbor. There's Beaver Hills, Saskatchewan. There, there's a many different ones. Crotch I think Lake. I didn't know there was a Crotch Lake. I did yeah. know there was a Balls Falls. Uh, Blow Me Down, Newfoundland. Come By Chance, I'd heard of. Dildo, I've heard of. Climax, Saskatchewan. I don't know why I thought, I just assumed all these places were in Newfoundland, but that's in, uh, clearly not in Newfoundland. Okay, so we got that out of the way. Let's actually talk about some of the history as we get set for the Grey Cup. Back in 1977, it's still the Grey Cup, but it was known as... It was known as the Ice Bowl. So what happened was on November 27th of that year, 68,000 people came to Olympic Stadium in Montreal for the Grey Cup game between Montreal and Edmonton. But two days prior, a blizzard had hit Montreal. And so to melt the snow on the field, the stadium crew used salt. But the next day, the temperature plunged and that melted the snow and the melted snow became one big sheet of ice. So what happened was Troy Proudfoot, who was the defensive back for Montreal, he decided to put, use staples on the bottom of the shoes for extra traction oh, yeah. for all of the Montreal players. So it's kind of got the name of the Staple Bowl as well, uh, the Staple Cup. And so as it turned out, that actually gave Montreal a distinct advantage because Edmonton only wore simple cleats. And Montreal won the game 41-6 to to win the Grey Cup. But Edmonton did get their revenge because they won the next five Grey Cups, including twice against Montreal. Wow. Yeah, there was quite a rivalry back then. Although I think the rivalry was Montreal owned the East and Edmonton owned the West. I grew up with Grey Cup parties, and I know a lot of people still probably do those, and you heard about all these things like the Ice Bowl, but in 1962, it wasn't an Ice Bowl, it had a different name. Yes, in 1962, it was the Fog Bowl, and this was a game between Winnipeg and Hamilton, and by the second quarter, fog was starting to roll in on the field. So cold, moist, and humid air came off Lake Ontario, and it created this fog that was so thick that fans couldn't actually even see the action on the field. And then receivers would lose sight of the ball as soon as it left the quarterback's hand, and punt returners simply couldn't find the ball until it hit the ground. So with nine minutes and 29 seconds left in the fourth quarter, the game was suspended. That's the only time this has ever happened. And the game resumed the following day, and Winnipeg won 28-27 to capture the Grey Cup. And this remains the only Grey Cup to have its play suspended, but it was also the first Grey Cup to be finished on a Sunday. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Uh, the first Grey Cup to be play, sorry, played or finished? 
finished on a Sunday. They didn't actually start playing them on Sundays until 1969. Okay. The Grey Cup, by the way, is coming up this Sunday. It is in Hamilton. Hopefully Hamilton's uh, transit situation will be solved. And it's at the, I was going to call it the new Tim Hortons Field, but it is relatively new Tim Hortons Field. Hopefully everybody will enjoy that. In the 1910s in Manitoba, there was a character who was an outlaw escaping multiple times and robbing several banks. Who do you have to tell us about? Well, it's Jack Kravchenko, and so he began his career in criminality at the age of 15 when he was arrested for theft. He spent time in jail, and then he went to Australia, he became a professional wrestler, then he came back to Canada, and he was passing bad checks and was arrested and sentenced to 18 months in prison. But while on the way to prison, he jumped off a moving train and escaped while handcuffed, but a guard did chase him down and recaptured him. Then in prison, he was put to work painting the outside walls of the prison, and while painting, he hit a guard over the head with a paint can and escaped. He eventually returned to oh, his hometown of Plum Coulee, Manitoba in 1913 and decided to rob a bank there again. So he killed the bank manager who tried to stop him from getting away. But while he was in jail, he was able to convince not only his lawyer, but a prison guard to help him escape. And then once he got out, he remained at large for eight days before he was recaptured. And now with obviously a new lawyer, he was convicted of murder and put to death in July 1914. And is he remembered in any way in Manitoba anywhere? I don't really think so. I, I mean, it's he kind of like, uh, not like he's uh, 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 somebody that you would remember, but uh, we don't have those kind of stories like the Jesse James and the folklore. So I'm just yeah. wondering if uh, times like this are the only time we're going to hear about him. Probably, unless locally, yeah. Okay. And finally, tell us about the first Indigenous woman elected as chief under the Indian Act. Yeah, so that was Elsie Knott, and she lived at the Curve Lake First Nation near Peterborough, Ontario. And in 1954, she was elected chief of the Curve Lake First Nation, so became the first woman elected as chief of a First Nation under the Indian Act. And as chief, she arranged for the construction of 45 new houses, the digging of wells, the upgrading of roads. She had a daycare, community centre, and senior citizens' home built on the reserve. And she began the reserve school bus system by driving students in her own car, and then she bought a hearse and converted that into a school bus, but but eventually she was able to buy two school buses and she drove those for 25 years. So she was chief of the First Nation for 14 years from 1954 to 1962 and 1970 to 1976. And she passed away on December 3rd, 1995 at the age of 73. All right. Some great stuff. Uh, are, do you throw uh, Grey Cup parties or do you watch a, the Grey Cup or is it a big thing? Because I know, uh, unfortunately, this, the game is uh, more, a b bigger probably out in the West than it is in the East. Uh, I watch a little bit of it, but uh, I'm more of a hockey guy. All right. Montreal Alouettes and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in Hamilton for the game this coming Sunday. Festivities well underway as we speak. Craig Baird, follow him on Twitter at Craig Baird and check out his podcast as well, Canadian History X.